If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, September 13th, 2021. A brand new week here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And we always recommend listening live because we've got a lot going on here. But should you miss even a minute, we encourage you to check out our podcast, which is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need to know about the show right there. GuyBensonShow.com, a few other options for the podcast, including FoxNewsPodcast.com and an array of other avenues. Wherever you get your podcasts, basically, we are there. On today's program, here's who we've got. Mara Liason from NPR and a Fox News contributor. She'll be here later in the hour talking about Capitol Hill politics, 9-11, Afghanistan, and whatever more and whatever else we have a chance to get to with Mara. Britt Hume will be here in our next hour, senior political analyst here at Fox. Looking forward to chatting with him. There's also a story out of Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. If you enjoy woke tales, the segment that we do here frequently, this one is uh, one for the record books. I mean, the wokery is peaking off the charts in this one. And we will have Jason Rance, our colleague and our friend uh, from KTTH, our affiliate out there. He's been covering the story. He broke it. He will break it down for us here on the show a bit later on. And Howie Kurtz in our final hour talking about media coverage, not just of the 9-11 anniversary, but on 9-11 itself. A very interesting subject and I think fertile ground for a thoughtful conversation about the role of media and social media in the midst of huge, even traumatic, breaking news. That will be Howie Kurtz in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin today's show. Let's bring you statistics on COVID. The confirmed total case count in the United States all time throughout the pandemic combined 41 million cases. The death toll is now 659,806. That's the number of Americans who have perished from this virus. The Dow is up today 131 points at this hour currently trading at 34,739. We will get to this a bit later, but I just want to bring to your attention that the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is testifying. He's testifying remotely, for some reason, in front of Congress, even though he is in Washington, D.C. I'm sure they're saying it's a COVID protocol, but he is being grilled by the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House with Republicans... I think, understandably and justifiably taking a tougher line and Democrats sort of trying to help play defense for the administration, Blinken admitting that there are still Americans stuck in Afghanistan. It's now been 
weeks since the deadline, and he's made a number of other assertions, including saying that President Biden extended President Trump's deadline after the Taliban had violated various elements of the agreement from the Trump administration. He, He extended the deadline, Biden did, in order to facilitate an orderly and safe withdrawal. How'd that work out? So we will revisit that with Britt and perhaps Mara coming up in a little while. We have some sound from that ongoing hearing on Capitol Hill. I see right now Chris Smith from New Jersey, a Republican, is questioning Secretary Blinken. In the meantime, I want to begin on a COVID-related story because I was reminded of this last night. We got home. I was in Nashville doing the show on Friday. I had a speaking engagement on Saturday. Got home last night and was finally done for the day and decided to veg out in front of Sunday Night Football and watching, what was it, the Chargers? Basically dismantle the Bears. And I'm sitting on my couch and watching some of the ads, and because it's political season in Virginia, we get ads for the gubernatorial race. And it's the Republican Glenn Youngkin in a very close race, it seems, with former Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe, who's trying to run and regain his old job. And I saw an ad from McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee, that was attacking Glenn Youngkin over COVID. He was tying him constantly to Donald Trump. And, I mean, Trump featured heavily in this ad. The message, obviously, is Glenn Youngkin is just... In bed with Donald Trump. He's a Trump Republican. Be very scared, suburban Northern Virginia voters. And one of the lines that they attacked Yunkin on, the Republican, in the ad, and they've had it full screen, Yunkin opposes mask mandates for children in schools. And the allegation is this is a dangerous anti-science position for this dangerous anti-science Republican to hold. Not to want children to be forced to wear masks in schools. And this brings me back to a storyline and a controversy that we have beaten into the ground on this show. And the reason that I flog it over and over again, as I say each time, is not because I'm that actually invested or fired up in whether or not kids are wearing face coverings inside school buildings. I think that there are some potential downsides for certain kids. I think opt-outs for parents would make sense. I'd much rather have kids in school than not, even if it involves masking. But I am particularly interested in the political and public health fight over masking in schools because it is a proxy fight, as I've said before, about whether data and evidence matters, whether those things are relevant, or whether sort of the elite media and their allies can just will into existence a conventional wisdom that is not actually supported by evidence and data. And I'll just remind you, if you're a new listener, because I think this is should be relevant, the UK has done a lot of data gathering over the course of their pandemic. And they've had their experts and their scientists and their government bureaucrats and everyone look at the data and they've come to the conclusion that kids don't have to wear masks in schools. In fact, they have scaled back what few mask requirements they had remaining in their schools. They did so during the Delta variant 
during the Delta wave, and they did just fine. Because that's what their data showed them. The CDC in the European Union, so their version of the CDC over there, they do not recommend masks in schools for kids 12 and under. And they're all across Europe. There are policies where there are age cutoffs or minimal requirements at all for masks in schools. But here in the United States, none of that data matters, apparently. When we have these debates and discussions, we treat governors who are adopting the British policy or the EU policy, they are treated like Neanderthals who are killing children. Like Governor DeSantis in Florida, like Governor Abbott in Texas, the list goes on. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican in Virginia, he wants to be governor of Virginia, and the Democrats are running ads against him, attacking him for agreeing with the UK and the EU on masks in schools. And they didn't just conjure up this policy out of nowhere. They did it based on data and surveys and the best public health information and also child development information that they have at their disposal. And it's gone well for them, right? We've seen the actual results over there. In some ways, I mean, in in England, for example, they don't have kids wearing masks. There are no requirements at all for kids in masks in schools. That's in England. Florida, by contrast, they're allowed to have mask requirements on a district-to-district basis. There just has to be an opt-out available for parents. That is the effective policy in Florida. That is a more pro-masking-in-schools policy than they have in England. But the way this is all covered would suggest that it is just the height of irresponsible, science-hostile recklessness to do anything close to that. And it's simply not justified by evidence. And so the two news hooks, in addition to these ads that I saw, these attack ads, that I want to draw to you here, number one is an NPR story that was shared widely on social media on the left, where NPR not in an opinion piece, but in one of their news stories, claimed that the scientific evidence in favor of masking in schools is, quote, conclusive. But it's not. Here's NPR's tweet over the weekend. The scientific research is conclusive. Widespread masking in schools significantly limits COVID transmission among students. And then the subheadline, this is an NPR article, Taxpayer subsidized, by the way. Yes, Governor DeSantis, studies do show masks curb COVID-19 in schools. Conservative writer A.G. Hamilton pointed out it's actually not true. This alleged conclusive evidence doesn't actually exist. He writes, quote, this is selective misinformation. CDC's own study determined that, listen, quoting, lower incidence in schools that required mask use among students was not statistically significant compared with schools where mask use was optional. He adds, Europe has come to the same conclusion. So there are studies out there that don't actually just home in on the issue of masking, where they can actually track that mitigation strategy, right, with a control group and all of that. 
They've tried to see, okay, here's a bunch of mitigation tactics being thrown into use in various schools. Let's see what happens. And the CDC's own study showed that on the question of masking kids, required versus optional, there was no statistically significant difference. Phil Kirpin, who's a conservative policy wonk and activist, he responds to the NPR story. This is pure misinformation, he says. It fails to cite a single study in which masks were even a variable. It's Exhibit 1 that they offered in this story is a paper written by an author who opposes mask mandates for kids. So I will remind you that an actual evidence-based review of this in New York Magazine, which is not a conservative publication, just a few weeks ago found that in many of our peer nations around the Western world, kids have been exempted with varying age cutoffs from wearing masks in classrooms. And, quote, conspicuously, there's no evidence of more outbreaks in schools in those countries relative to schools in the United States where the solid majority of kids wore masks for an entire academic year. And, of course, there's the additional Delta area, uh, Delta era evidence out of the U.K. and Europe and elsewhere. So just wanted to fact check an NPR fact check where they assert that evidence is conclusive when that is simply not true. And they do so in this snarky way like they are scolding and dunking on Governor Ron DeSantis. Speaking of whom, there's a headline in Politico that I wanted to address related to this. Child COVID deaths more than double in Florida as kids return to the classroom. People sharing this blood on his hands. Ron DeSantis did this. I will reiterate what should be obvious. Whenever a child dies for any reason, it is a tragedy. It is horrible. If we are creating public policy, we cannot zoom in on vanishingly rare, horrible tragedies as representative of a broad population and therefore craft policies around that. That is not a smart way to govern, especially on an issue as tricky as a pandemic, especially given all that we know about COVID and kids. So that sounds scary. The deaths have more than doubled since July among kids. And the grand total for the course of the entire pandemic now of kids who've died of slash with COVID in Florida is 17. And every one of those families is heartbroken. And our hearts go out to every one of those families. Also, 17 kids under the age of 18 in a state where that population of that age group is roughly 4 million is not a smart or productive basis for widespread policy decisions that affect millions. And I read the whole story, and a lot of it is sort of framing this as, could this be a problem for DeSantis? He's up for re-election. He's under attack constantly. 
And the assumption that I think they want a lot of people to make is, oh, these kids who have died during the Delta wave, they did it because they went back to the classroom, got it at school, got COVID at school, and weren't wearing masks. And I kept looking in the article for any evidence of those assertions. And there was none. We have no idea where any of these kids were infected. No idea if they were infected in school or out of school. We know it's more likely out of school based on all the data that we have in this pandemic. We have no idea how many of them may have gotten it in school and if any of them were masked or not. We don't know. We know that almost all of them had serious comorbidities and other conditions. But this is being marshaled as a cudgel to bash someone again for political reasons. I want data and evidence on this stuff. And here we have major news organizations going in the other direction because there's a narrative. And we try to stick to the facts here on this show and push back against narratives that may not be supported by reality, which may not matter, but it should. And it does on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I saw this story, an essay written by Ross Dellinger, who's a college football writer. But in Time Magazine, he talked about his family's heartbreak. He lost an aunt to whom he was extremely close. She was an incredibly kind, generous, life-filled person. But she was skeptical of the vaccines, wouldn't get vaccinated, and has now died from COVID. He explains in the piece that his family went on a beach vacation in July... Nine adults stayed in the same condominium. Three out of those nine ended up testing positive for COVID-19. Two of the three were vaccinated and they had minor colds, very mild. The third, his aunt, was unvaccinated. She was eventually hospitalized, then sent to the ICU, then intubated, and she died. And it is an absolutely brutal read. And the reason I bring it up is... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Just to say this yet again, don't, if you're not vaccinated, don't do so just because Joe Biden told you to or is going to try to mandate it. Do it for you and do it for the people who love you. Because the people dying overwhelmingly are unvaccinated. 
With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. Glad you're here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, The Guy Benson Show, online at GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. With us now is Mara Liason, national political correspondent for NPR and a Fox News contributor. Mara, good to have you back. Happy to be here. I want to start with what's happening on Capitol Hill, not the Blinken testimony right now. We've been talking about that a bit. We'll play some sound coming up in the next hour. But I want to talk instead about this reconciliation package and the huge amount of spending that Democrats are hoping to get across the finish line. And it sounds like the goal, from leadership at least, is to get to $3.5 trillion. That's the rule that they wrote. That's sort of the package that they outlined. But Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia appears to be planting his feet on a number much closer to $1 trillion, maybe $1.5 trillion. He said that he would like to see the bipartisan hard infrastructure deal pass and get signed into law. And now he's advocating just a strategic pause altogether on the reconciliation piece of it, the, the soft infrastructure and other spending that Biden would like. Here's part of what he said on ABC yesterday with George Stephanopoulos, Cut 23. I've been very clear, I think, and I think a strategic pause is necessary right now. We have the unknown, and the unknown is everything you've been talking about. COVID, what's going to happen with COVID, what it'll do to the economy. No one's talking about inflation or debt, and we should have that as part of the discussion. And then the geopolitical, what's going on around the world and what type of challenges we may face. So the unknown is there, and we don't know what that's going going to partake. What we do know is that basically... The need for this, the emergency to do something in the next week is not there. So, Mara, he said he would not vote in favor of this package in the Senate. He said Senator Schumer, the leader, knows that. He said, I'm not the only one who wants to oppose this. And, of course, some on the progressive left are really coming after him hard and attacking him. And he's responding. Where does this stand right now? Because it seems like the outcome is in question at this stage. Well, it all depends on whether Democrats can figure out how to compromise among themselves. There are no Republicans in these negotiations because this bill is going to be passed under the reconciliation rules, which are a carve-out or an exemption from the filibuster for budget bills. And that means that in the Senate, where they have absolutely no room for error, they need every single Democrat to vote yes. I don't think that the end result will be a $3.5 trillion bill because Joe Manchin won't vote for a $3.5 trillion bill. And as he suggested, there are probably other Democrats, maybe Kristen Sinema, uh, maybe some others who also won't vote for a bill that big. Then you get into the negotiations. Okay, well, what can you give up? Um, when he talks about a strategic pause and, of course, parsing and interpreting what Joe Manchin says and what he believes is sometimes hard. It's unclear how long he wants to pause for. Um, This is not one of those stimulus bills that has a kind of uh, urgent need. In other words, the money in this bill is not going to be poured into the economy immediately the way it was in the rescue plans or the COVID relief bills. It's going to be spent over eight to 10 years. This is a Well, as the White House would call it, a Build Back Better bill. This is about making long-term investments 
in human infrastructure. And uh, it's also just, just to, to build on that point for a second, it's not, and this is sometimes the case on Capitol Hill, it's also not one of these cliffs Right where Congress has to act, no, and if they don't, no. then something dramatic happens by virtue of a sunset or a deadline. That is also not the case, which is why you know a pause, in his mind, is a reasonable thing. I think what leadership is worried about, they're sort of anxiously eyeing the political calendar, frankly, and saying, okay, right. if we have to take a tough vote here at some point, and we're going to anger some element of the electorate, do we want this process spilling over, potentially, you know, even into 2022, the election year, I think that has to be part of the calculus here. Yes, absolutely. Look, you know, we we have these series of two-year presidencies where a president gets two years to make his mark legislatively, and then inevitably the party in power loses one house or both of Congress, and then he can't pass any more legislation after that. Uh, So I think the Democrats see their control of Congress possibly as ephemeral, uh, that they might not have the House after 2022. And not only do they have to pass this now while they have control, but as you said, you don't want to wait too long because then campaign season, which I believe is already in full swing, gets even more intense and harder to keep your troops in line. But uh, you're absolutely right that there's no cliff in here. As a matter of fact, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has explicitly ruled out adding the debt ceiling to this reconciliation bill. That would be one of those cliffs. In other words, right. if you don't right. increase the debt ceiling, you know, the uh, uh, United States uh, defaults on its debt. And she, she said, no, we're not going to do that. So they're going to try to put together this consensus the old-fashioned way, figuring out what Joe Manchin wants. And he has been, even though he is the single most important Democrat in the Senate, because he's the fulcrum of power here, he has been a pretty loyal supporter of Joe Biden's agenda up until now. Mara, on the subject of Joe Biden's agenda, he announced last week a number of new steps in the fight against COVID, including very controversially more vaccine mandates, including federal pressure on private businesses to require vaccines for their employees or, uh, you know, a testing option as well. There's a big fight over whether or not that's constitutional. Those legal challenges are already flying. They're underway. And I think we'll we'll see probably a lot of movement on that and action in the courts. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who was the FDA chief under President Trump, he's a very well-respected uh, you know, face and, and name in the public health arena. He is almost every week on CBS Face the Nation talking about the pandemic. He was asked about this, and he said he thinks a downside of a mandate like this is hardening positions. He said, quote, in the near term, you could actually discourage some vaccination. And then on the question about this imposition on businesses, Gottlieb said this in Cut 20. Listen. It puts a big burden on businesses to have to operationalize that and didn't determine what they're going to do with the results. So I think a lot of businesses are going to opt to try to force workers to get vaccinated if, in fact, this ever goes into effect. So I don't think we had to reach down to the level of small businesses with 100 or more employees and put a federal requirement on them. I don't think the federal government should be dictating this. I also don't think governors should be preventing small businesses from making these determinations on their own. We should leave these decisions to communities, local communities and businesses to make assessments on what their risk is, what their settings are, how much precautions they can put in. So, Mara, you've got, as I see it, the constitutional debate. You've got the debate on whether this is actually going to be helpful and constructive. You've got the public health debate. Is it a good idea? A lot of moving parts to this. 
How do you read it in these early days since Biden made the announcement that he did? Well, a lot of moving parts, and I thought that Scott Gottlieb cut was really interesting because um, you do hear Republicans saying this is going to harden the opposition. I think the White House has come to the conclusion that they tried persuasion, they tried dangling lots of carrots, rewards for getting vaccinated, and they just hit a wall. They, as Biden said the other day, there are 20, about 20 to 25 percent of Americans who just are not going to be convinced to take the vaccine. And they are endangering their neighbors because if we can't get large numbers of people vaccinated, we can't get ahead of the variants. Maybe the next one after Delta will be worse. So I think he decided there was no more value in trying to convince people that he would use his power. And remember, he's not mandating that everyone get a vaccine. What he's saying is under OSHA rules, under the federal government's uh, uh, ability to regulate certain kinds of businesses, that businesses with 100 or more employees, and don't forget, most people work for businesses with much fewer, and they're not affected by this new rule. But if you have 100 or more, you either have to get your employees vaccinated or test them weekly. At the same time, as Scott Gottlieb just pointed out, you've got a bunch of Republican governors putting out different kinds of mandates, saying that local businesses, local governments can't make their own decisions, that, that there has to be only one rule, a mandate, that you can't require vaccines or masks. So I think that this debate, the big mandate debate, is really scrambling uh, the politics of both parties. Yeah, I think that there's no question about that. And it's some people who are happy when governors do things are unhappy when the president does it and vice versa. And there can be charges of hypocrisy. There's also the question of who has the authority. Does the president actually have the authority through OSHA regulations right. to do this? And well, the courts know, will, deter will determine that. And don't forget, in those states where Republican governors say they're going to sue the federal government, there are vaccine mandates on the books today for public school children, polio, smallpox, hepatitis, measles, mumps, rubella. And I don't think they're saying that they they want to get rid of those mandates. No, and I think those are uh, vaccine mandates that have been passed at the state level. And I think that's the constitutional yes, yes, debate that's here, right. right? That's right. Right. How were those imposed, you know, by one person right. saying this is what I'm going to do? Because I think, uh, Mara, part of my frustration with it, because I'm extremely pro-vaccine, I've been very consistent on that, I am not enamored with this move by President Biden. And one of the reasons is, he and his administration insisted over and over again, including from his own mouth, from his top spokeswoman and others, we are not going to do a federal mandate. That's not the role of the federal government. We don't think it should be mandated. I think if you tell people that that is your intention all along and then on a dime, you kind of flip 180, part of the reason that there are so many holdouts is lack of trust. And I don't know if credibility and trust is going to be restored if you have public officials assuring people, no, no, we're not going to do it this way. That's not our role. We're not going to try. And then on a Thursday in September, you say, actually, never mind. We're going to try because we're out of patience with you. That's a part of my concern on the political side of this, at least. Right. And, you know, I have this thought experiment that I constantly think about, which is what if Donald Trump, who got the vaccine online faster than anyone expected, cut a PSA, you know, three months ago, six months ago, and telling every one of his supporters, take the Trump vaccine. I created this to help you avoid COVID. He would be the savior of the country. I think that there's another 
you know, counterfactual <laughs> or hypothetical where, you know, let's say Donald Trump won re-election and he yeah. decided to try to mandate that everyone get what he was calling the Trump vaccine. And he was bragging about how mm -hmm. it's his vaccine. And now mm -hmm. I'm going to mandate yep. it. I think you'd probably have a lot of the resistance crowd sounding a lot like the MAGA crowd right now saying, hell no, he doesn't have the power. He's a dictator. We don't trust it. I mean, I think some of this, a lot of this is deeply tribal. Yes, except except that the party that, well, the, vac the people who are willing to take the vaccines believe in science and believe in the vaccines. And there's a huge overlap between MAGA world and the anti-vax right that, that has been steeped in tremendous amounts of disinformation about vaccines. Yeah, no, I think, I think that is definitely true on the COVID vaccine. I think before this pandemic, a lot of the anti-vax action was, yes, on, was the on the left. And, There's no doubt yep, about and, that. Which There's is no very interesting yeah. there. And then yeah. last question, yeah. and this is one of the sort of one of the screwballs in the analysis that people don't talk about quite as much. There is still a disproportionate number of people of color who have not taken the vaccine. And that's another wrinkle where, I mean, these are not Trump supporters or, you know, right wingers reading stuff on Facebook. This is a, another form of, of distrust where I've seen, for example, in New York City, where the numbers are quite low among black people in particular, they're going to require vaccine passports to go into various businesses. Under that set of rules, an awful lot of people of color would be denied access to a whole host of businesses. That doesn't quite fit in through the partisan lens, but I, I still find it interesting because there's, there's pockets of hesitancy and cynicism that exist for radically different reasons right and but yes but there's also other reasons why vaccine rates are low in minority communities that have nothing to do with vaccine hesitancy they also have to do with just not being able to go out and get it for a variety of reasons but anyway there's there's so many uh explanations for this but there's no doubt that when you look at a map of Trump counties and Biden counties, the vaccine separation is stark. Yep, that there is no doubt about that. Yeah. And then there's yeah. the, the confounding thing that the red state with the highest vaccination rate by far is above average is Florida. And they just had one of the toughest waves they are coming out of it now. Thank God. One of the toughest Delta waves in the whole country was one of the above average vaccinated states. And it, it has been a deeply frustrating and alarming pandemic to live through. And it just feels like whenever you're getting your hopes up that we might finally be turning the page, something happens and a lot of people are just at each other's throats constantly over it. There's liberty questions, there's public health questions, and people like us, you know, we're not doctors or experts, we're just trying to communicate clearly and accurately about it uh, amid a lot of that emotion. And it seems like we're going to be attempting to do that, Mara, for the foreseeable future. Uh, quickly, last word. Yes, I agree with you, unfortunately. <laughs> Mara Liason, national political correspondent for National Public Radio and a Fox News contributor. Mara, always appreciate your time. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks for having me. You bet. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. 
Reliving the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show, Britt Hume will be here in the next hour. He'll get his reaction, or will get his reaction, to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who is right now testifying before Congress, albeit remotely. He is currently answering questions from Daryl Issa, the Republican from California, and he said a few things that have raised eyebrows. We'll play some of that sound and talk to Britt about that coming up. I want to address something that the vice president tweeted. Apparently, the Biden administration is really doubling down on this point, which is that we need to protect collectively the country needs to protect vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. Biden said it in his speech the other day. The White House then tweeted that clip the next day, Friday. And then over the weekend, Vice President Harris tweeted the same thing about protecting the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. And I just want to once again reiterate how backwards I think that messaging is. It is true that the actions of unvaccinated people can affect vaccinated people through breakthrough cases, which are overwhelmingly not severe, not bad enough to send someone to the hospital, but they are breakthrough cases. That's one way. There are examples, thank God, not too many of them, but they do exist in places like Mississippi and Alabama. We've seen headlines, including one over the weekend, where people who have a serious health crisis cannot get into an ICU because they are full up in hospital after hospital with COVID patients, almost all of whom are unvaccinated. That is avoidable, right? So there is a kernel of truth to it. The overall reality, though, is the protection for the vaccinated is the vaccine, which keeps almost everyone who gets vaccinated out of the hospital and prevents them from dying. And I think to try to justify a national strategy and a dubious legal mandate to try to frame it as protecting vaccinated people against the unvaccinated, again, broadcasts a signal pretty flagrantly that the government doesn't have great confidence in the vaccines, which is a destructive, destructive and wrong message. And of course, the Biden White House is doubling down on it. Of course, they are. Brit Hume, coming up, second hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have each and every one of you here. 3 to 6 p.m. every weekday online at GuyBensonShow.com, across our great affiliates all over the country. And on the podcast, which is free on demand as an option as well. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow has a good day. Closes up 261 points, finishing at 34,869. The Secretary of State 
Anthony Blinken, is being grilled by mostly Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Mostly the Democrats are playing defense. This is sort of how these hearings tend to go. Adam Kinzinger, a regular guest on this program, Republican of Illinois, currently asking the questions. He said a number of different things already and have garnered some attention. And joining me now to break it down and react, Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, welcome back. Thank you, Guy. Glad to be with you. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Let's make our way through some of these sound bites. I'd love to get your reaction to them, starting with Blinken in his opening remarks, among other things, saying this in Cut 36. There's no evidence that staying longer would have made the Afghan security forces or the Afghan government any more resilient or self-sustaining if 20 years and hundreds of billions of dollars in support, equipment, and training did not suffice. Why would another year, another five, another ten? So, Britt, a familiar refrain from this administration basically saying, well, you know, an open-ended commitment wouldn't have made the Afghan forces stand on their own two feet, so why wait any longer? Seems to at least be a somewhat compelling argument in favor of withdrawing. There are, of course, counterpoints. It has nothing to do with the way they withdrew. Well, that's true. It doesn't. And furthermore, it leaves open the question, or at least it, it fails to deal with the fact that leaving the way we did made the Afghan forces a hell of a lot less resilient right. uh, than they had previously been. I mean, they'd held out for a long time. And, you know, Blinken came up with a parade of horribles that we've all heard from him and from others in the administration before about all the dire things that were going to happen militarily uh, if uh, if we had not, if we had stayed and had not kept our end of the deal, the very very weak deal cut by the Trump administration uh, in which we agreed to get out, that, that, that the Afghan forces were going to resume their attacks, they were going to start attacking Americans, they were going to attack the cities, and, and, and so on. Well, perhaps so. But then there's this question that never seems to be asked, Guy, and it's this. If this outcome is what our pulling out got, and it was the inevitable outcome of whether in the short term or the long term, are we satisfied with this? Or are we simply saying that it was never a good idea to go into Afghanistan to root out the, to root out the Taliban and shut down the, the bases uh, of al-Qaeda and other terrorist operations? Because that is, that is where we seem to be now. And if that was where we're inevitably going to be, it does raise the question of whether getting out would simply be something for a period of time when we might have to go back. Well, on that point, and on Blinken had this to say, cut 39. Congressman, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, uh, the uh, al-Qaeda, the group that attacked us uh, on 9-11 long ago, was vastly degraded to the point where it is currently not capable in the assessment of our intelligence agencies of conducting an externally uh, directed attack against us uh, or against others. So, Britt, I hope and pray that he is right. I think politically the administration better hope and pray even harder that he's right about that, that al-Qaeda is not capable of carrying out, you know, outward-facing attacks against the United States or others, he said. And, you know, I don't want to be too cynical, but some of the pronouncements made confidently by this exact man in the last few months have proven disastrously wrong already. And again, I really hope this is not another one that we might add to the list at some point. Well, we're also hearing from from uh, the secretary that the Taliban had become 
stronger than it had basically been at any time in recent years. That it was really it was on it was on the way back. There's no reason to believe that a Taliban that strong would not, and and there's no reason to believe, based on the evidence we've seen since we left, that the Taliban has changed in any way. Uh, in any meaningful way that would make it less likely to harbor the kind of terrorist undertakings that led to 9-11. So, you know, I don't think that their argument, they're trying to kind of have it both ways. They're trying to say, well, they're, you know, the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies are degraded to the point where they can't hit us anymore. Um, but on the other hand, they're militarily stronger than, than the Taliban's mil- militarily stronger than they've ever been. It doesn't really add up very well. Well, they also have tens of billions of dollars of American equipment and weapons now. Uh, So that is also part of this equation. Among the other things that Secretary Blinken said, he did concede that here we are two weeks after the deadline, uh, the Biden deadline, where we ended up actually getting out a day before that deadline. But we're two weeks beyond that. And there are still Americans stranded in Afghanistan. They're putting the number around 100. It's the same number that they've had for the last two weeks, really. And they're not, ex- they're not including, my understanding is, legal permanent residents who could number in the hundreds or thousands of Americans who were stuck over there. And if, that's not even at all mentioning the Afghan allies who helped us for all these years. State Department has apparently told them for the time being they cannot process their claims or their visa applications. They're encouraging people who are stuck to appeal to the United Nations for help. Uh, That's sort of what this has come to. But it was an admission that here we are weeks later, and the status quo of Americans in that country seems to be approximately the same as it was Two weeks ago, I I know the media has not covered this nearly as heavily or acutely as they were back then, but that nightmare for Americans and others is very much an ongoing reality. There's no doubt about that, and and it's one more thing that, you know, one more broken promise that uh, the president firmly made. And absolutely explicitly made that you know we were going to not only get all our own people out, we're going to get all all our allied helpers out, which we manifestly did not do and have not done, and it appears will not do. One more soundbite I want to play from Blinken, who's currently taking questions from a Democrat from Rhode Island. This soundbite to me is not a great one uh, for Secretary Blinken. Uh, listen for yourself, Britt. Cut thirty-eight. Uh, Did we have a plan to get Americans from all over Afghanistan to Kabul and out in an orderly way? How meticulous was the planning for the Trump administration declared uh, May 1st uh, withdrawal? Thank you, Congressman. Uh, We we inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan. So (laughs) no no plan at all. Uh, It's amazing that it wasn't much, much worse. So there was a Democratic congressman there, you know, just completely carrying water there for the Biden administration. But the key bite from Blinken was, we inherited a deadline, we didn't inherit a plan. Now, Britt, the deadline that they inherited was May 1st. They pushed the deadline back, Blinken says, to make sure that there was an orderly withdrawal, which of course ended up not happening at all. The deadline that they inherited was discarded by this president, and many people, including Trump administration officials, have said the Taliban violated the terms of that agreement about the previous deadline, and Blinken seems to have conceded that point. But I don't understand how he 
believes that this is helpful, saying, we inherited a deadline but not a plan. They moved the deadline, and it was their job to have a plan because this is their policy. That's right. And, you know, this, this, this business about the deadline um, is something that they've harped on repeatedly to support the proposition that they really didn't have any choice but to do what they did, which was to get out because we're under a deadline. But as you point out, Guy, the deadline had been ignored, moved, uh, and so on by the Biden administration, I mean, which had you know, overturned, ignored, and otherwise disregarded a number of other Trump uh, administration uh, policies and agreements. So um, it's a very weak argument, and it's one of the weakest part of their argument, and it's, and it's constantly used to support the whole proposition. You know, and you also hear in, 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 in conjunction with that, you continually hear from Democrats and other defenders of the administration that, that well, you know, um, there was an un, it was an unconditional agreement by, by Trump and company. Look, I think it was a bad agreement. I wish it had never been entered into, but it wasn't unconditional. There were conditions, and the conditions had been flouted uh, by the Taliban repeatedly uh, to include, among other things, the uh, provision that they were supposed to have reached for the the deal to stand. They were supposed to have made a deal with the the, uh, existing Afghan government, which had been kept out of the talks. So that and that, 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 those talks to bring that about never even started. So that's how much of, a, of an unconditional deal it was. It wasn't. Britt, there's this interesting story that hasn't gotten all that much attention. It's from the New York Times, and I credit them for, for looking into this. After our troops were murdered in that suicide bombing in Kabul during the chaotic and disastrous Biden withdrawal, there was a reprisal from the Biden administration where they said, you know, we're going to we're going to hunt you down. We still have capabilities. We have what they call over the horizon capabilities. And they announced with great fanfare that they had taken out uh, some ISIS K fighters who were at least tangentially connected to that terrible attack against our troops. Of course, our troops at that time were largely at the mercy of Taliban security because Taliban, they had been seated the city. The Biden administration saw fit to, to hand over Kabul, voluntarily hand over Kabul during the withdrawal to the Taliban, which is pretty wild. That being said, we didn't get many details aside from, well, we, we sent this drone and we killed some of these ISIS-K guys and you know, let this be a lesson that you can't attack our people. Even though we're withdrawing, it doesn't mean that we're not going to come get you. And, of course, there had to be reprisal. They, they had to do something uh, to avenge that attack. But the New York Times has done a pretty significant deep dive into this drone strike, and there appears to be at least some pretty powerful evidence that the person who was killed was not an ISIS-K fighter, and this may have been mistaken identity. They got the wrong guy here. And I can't help but wonder if, let's say, a Republican administration were getting hammered in the polls on a giant failure that they had just presided over and were still presiding over, and they puffed out their chests to say, look what we've just done against these terrorists, and they very well may have blown up an innocent person in their haste to try to change the the narrative a little bit. I get the sense that that would maybe not be a back burner story so much. No, it would be all over the news. It would be 
you know, the latest atrocity by the, uh, you know, the warlike uh, uh, administration operating under terrible intelligence. That's the story we'd be reading about. And, yeah, and, and uh, this, this, looks, this looks bad. Give the New York Times credit for pursuing it. Um, and I think, you know, we also don't yet know. You remember they were supposed to have bumped off a couple of al-Qaeda operatives who were planners. Remember that? Yep. And we never found out who they were. Um, well, there's no reason for us not to, uh, they said that, you know, it's classified or whatever. Well, certainly all the, uh, the terrorists or the people around them know perfectly well who they are. They're, they witness their killing. So the, the idea that we need, to, we need to hold that information back because it's classified is obviously s- s- absurd on its face. Um, so that's a so that's yet another mil- another operation in the course of all this that's been called into question and with apparently with good reason. Well, this testimony on Capitol Hill, although it's uh, being done remotely, conducted remotely in a number of cases, including from the secretary himself. He's in his Washington D.C. office, but the. the the virtual, partially virtual hearing is ongoing. We are monitoring it. We wanted to get some of that sound to our audience and had some excellent analysis there from Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, always a privilege to have you here. Looking forward Thanks, to next guy. time. Appreciate being with you. All the best. Of, of course. Same to you. And with that, we will step aside. When we come back, getting awfully close to recall day in California. The election is tomorrow. Where do things stand? We'll have a short update on that when we come back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, Fox News Alert. They've just gaveled out of that hearing with Secretary Blinken. And one thing that he said just before the gavel, he was asked about green card holders, those permanent legal residents in Afghanistan, Americans, Americans still in Afghanistan. And he estimated that that number could be several thousand. So the number of U.S. citizens in Afghanistan, they keep saying is about 100 It's been roughly static for two weeks. And now an admission, it seems, from the administration that the number of other Americans in Afghanistan still stranded numbers in the thousands. That is significant news. Meanwhile, out in California, this was a somewhat surprising appearance yesterday. Cut 34, listen to actress and activist Rose McGowan. I used to listen to Larry Elder. After I would uh, drive home from the set, or if I got off early, I would listen to him on AM radio 640, probably the only actress in Hollywood doing so. Sometimes I would even like pull over and use a fake name, usually Tracy, to call in and argue or recommend. And from him, I learned about the corruption in the teachers union in the California state. Rose McGowan appearing with Larry Elder, uh, Larry Elder out in California, head of tomorrow's recall election. She went after Gavin Newsom. She said she takes no pleasure in really attacking Democrats. She said, I was a Democrat, but she said so many of the people that she has seen around her lying 
and complicit in a whole array of abuse in her mind are Democrats. And so she held this press conference with Larry Elder, who's the leading Republican in that race. The election is tomorrow. I talked a bit about my thoughts on that race when I got back from California last week. The polling has only moved in a worse direction from my perspective. And now the average of polls would suggest that Gavin Newsom is on track to hold his seat as governor out in California, likely by double digits. I mean, it would take a mammoth polling miss for him to get recalled at this point because there's been a pretty decisive shift in the numbers from roughly a tie on the yes-no question on recall just about a month ago to, you know, a 15 to 20 point lead now for Newsom as the Democrats have poured a huge amount of money into ads, a lot of them filled with fear-mongering and attacks, some of which are baseless or tendentious. But my message to Californians would be, vote. The polls don't determine things. People determine things. Maybe Democrats are now being lulled back into the false sense of security that they always get to run everything out there. The only way you can send a message one way or another is to vote. And it looks like that uh, hearing, by the way, on Capitol Hill might be getting back underway. But we shall see. I saw President Trump saying that the election is rigged already, which would drive down Republican participation. It's like a form of voter suppression on your own side. He did the same thing in Georgia, if you remember, for those Senate races. Look what happened there. Disaster. Get out and vote. It's The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. Welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. One of our great affiliates over on the West Coast, the left coast in the Pacific Northwest, is KTTH, 770 AM and 94.5 FM in Seattle, Tacoma. We air every night out there at midnight to 3 AM, and one of the head honchos over there, and also host of a very popular show on that station, is our friend Jason Rance. You see him all over Fox News Channel on the TV side. He's host of the Jason Rance Show. And Jason, great to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. So you sometimes will send me a little DM with a tip or a headline or a story that you've got cooking. And I feel like you live at sort of this ground zero area for insane wokery in the Pacific Northwest. And you've become almost a clearinghouse for some of the most wild excesses that I've seen in this broad category. And you sort of own that space. People come to you. We have a segment here on the show, of course, called Woke Tales. We even have a jingle. Listen. Woke Tales. So this falls totally (laughs) and clearly within the Woke Tales category. This most recent story that you've written, and you've covered it on your show as well. Talk about what happened at this high school in Washington State involving what the students were hoping would be 
I think, a, a lovely tribute on the 20th or right around the 20th anniversary of 9-11 that was actually nixed by the so-called adults in charge. Yeah. Again, you, you can't make this type of thing up. It is reality in your neck of the woods. Indeed it is. So at Eastlake High School, it's over in Sammamish, about 20 or so minutes from Seattle, they had a football game that was rescheduled for September 10th. And the students there said, hey, this is the day before the 20th anniversary of September 11th, which, by the way, these kids weren't even born at that time, but their lives have been forever altered as a result of that. They said, let us do something. So they wanted to do something called Patriots Day as a theme where everyone would be wearing red, white, and blue. And initially, it was approved, except on Friday morning, they were told during announcements in first period class that they were not going to move forward with this, and everyone should just wear school colors. And some parents asked what happened, and some kids asked what happened. And it turns out that according to the school administration, they were concerned that without enough time to let the other team that they were going to play against in football, to let them know about this event, that they might be taken by surprise, and that they would, quote, could unintentionally cause offense to some who see it differently, it being the red, white, and blue display. So the implication was that others uh, at the other school, or maybe I suppose some at this particular school, would be offended by the colors of the American flag in or out of context with 9-11. I spoke to a student also over the weekend who said he spoke with the student leadership side, because remember, this was all being done by students, and they were told by a staff member that it could cause some, it could be racially insensitive was the language that was used. Wow. So this was spearheaded, and I just want to pause for a second and actually state for the record how wonderful it is in my mind that this was spearheaded by the kids. The yep. kids weren't alive for 9-11, right? I was in high school for 9-11. They were years away from even being born in 2001, but they understand, I think, instinctually what a traumatic and dramatic event this was that altered so many things in this country and they said we want to pay tribute to the people who lost their lives that day and just recognize it let's wear the colors of the american flag let's do that as our gesture and the fact that the students came up with this i think is actually kind of heartwarming and i'm, I'm really glad that they did that and what's so disappointing, although I can't necessarily say surprising, is that it was the administrators and the teachers who decided to come in at the very last minute, overrule the students and say, no, this might be offensive. The colors of the flag might be offensive, and therefore we're not going to allow it anymore. Jason, what exactly was the theory here? Is this just, you know, the American flag stands for, what, a, a legacy that's stained with slavery, and therefore we can't celebrate America fully, and therefore we're not going to do this? Or was there something more specific? It seems like this was like a, a hypothetical offense-taking by a fringe that they just determined was a reason to pre preemptively cancel this, this nice and, I think, significant gesture. Well, what some of the students were telling me over the weekend is that they believe that this is just wokeness run amok. They're going up against a team from a high school that is 
predominantly minority in its demographic, and there was this presumption that they would be offended. I haven't heard anything from the other school insisting that something like this would be offensive to them, or uh, unintentionally or intentionally. So it seems like this was just presumptive on the staff side. There's at least one staff member who's responsible for this. Based on what I'm able to gather, it doesn't sound like the principal knew that this was a decision that had been made and kind of was caught off guard. That said, the school very clearly was sticking to the same language, because I'm looking at emails, one from the associate principal and one from the principal, using the exact same quote that I gave earlier about the unintentional cause uh, of offense. So at some point, they very clearly decided, yeah, we're going to have to stick with this, rather than just say, no, the staff member was incorrect initially when they decided to get rid of the Patriots Day theme. Right yeah, now, they- I can tell you that you know they're, they're hearing the criticism, Unfortunately, there are some folks who uh, saw it naturally, I'm assuming, the story started to uh, made, uh, make some telephone threats to the school. So there was increased police presence earlier today, which, of course, we don't want to have happen. No, there's no place for that. Point, yeah, but it points to just how intense the emotions around this actually are. I just wish they would have handled this better from the beginning. Well, I mean, to me, it is absolutely outrageous and ridiculous and offensive that the American flag and the colors of our flag are offensive to the point that we cannot wear them. And there can't be any well, sort of offensive. organized... No, it's, it's not offensive. It's, it's wrong. It's, it's all fake. It, this is what folks on the left like to do uh, to, to push through their belief that this is a country that was founded on white supremacy. Our institutions need to be dismantled because they're systems of oppression, and we must rebuild them. And so they pretend that their fringe feelings, their minority feelings on this, is somehow reflective of reality, and it very clearly is not. Yeah, and in these emails that you obtained from administrators to concerned or irate parents, they cite a decision being made by, quote, our leadership teachers. So, again, these were the technical adults in the room who got together in their little lefty brain trust and decided, let's bring the axe down on this tribute to America on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And just, here's the other thing, Jason. This is a high school football game. They pulled the plug at the very last minute, apparently, and part of their excuse is, well, we're not sure we had time to notify the other school. I don't think you need to notify anyone if you're doing a pro-America tribute, first of all, but even if you have it in your head that that's something that you ought to do, are they aware that there are things such as email and telephone calls or text messages where you can just say, hey, heads up, it's almost the 20th anniversary. Of course, that's going to be tomorrow. Our students want to wear red, white, and blue in honor of this commemoration, and we just want to let you know that that's what we're doing. That's all that it would take, but they didn't do that. They, they canceled it instead. Have they given any specific explanation for what would be offensive and to whom? Nope. And I've asked multiple times, and they are sort of backtracking, saying that it's not necessarily what the principal intended when he wrote this particular email or this particular (laughs) statement that's been passed around. It it is so absolutely absurd, and everyone knows exactly what's going on here. One of the emails that I have printed on my piece over at KTTH.com is dated 12.42 p.m., and so you're, you mean to tell me that a game that was, I believe the, the, the kickoff was at like 5.30, you don't have any time to give a call over to the other side and just say, hey, FYI, this is happening. And by the way, one of the parents who went to the game shared a photo with me as it got started, and there was virtually no one from the other team actually at the game. So there was no one to be offended because no one showed up except for the students on the side of Eastlake. 
There was a suggestion among some of the parents, and I saw this in your story, and I have to say, I find it at the very least to be plausible because the school is clamming up. They're not providing any real answers about how this decision was made or why. Some of the parents have suggested, well, it seems like the administrators and the teachers at this high school said, and this would go to sort of the progressive white guilt complex that I think is such a driving force behind wokeness. They got together and said, oh, gosh, the school that we're playing has a lot of black people and students who go there. We know that the flag can be offensive to black people. We don't want to offend them. They might be offended by this. So we have to sort of nip it in the bud and make sure that that doesn't happen, which is sort of an extremely presumptuous and paternalistic approach to this and some people are actually suggesting that unto itself is at least uh, you know racial if not racist what do you make of that I think the parents are correct in their assumption the school says that that was not the implication of this email it feels hard to believe that they didn't at least consider that perspective just based on the literal written statement that was provided. It's, again, all of this seems to be pretty clear on its face. Is it possible that there's some behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't know about? Sure, that's always possible, which is why we give opportunities multiple times for them to clear up and give us some of the context here. Simply just saying, well, maybe, you know, one staff member did the wrong thing. We'll have a conversation with that staff member. That doesn't explain any of the statements that were produced by the No, school. they doubled down. Expo- they doubled down yeah, on policy. Exactly. And they coordinated the response because it was the same response that was shared to multiple people by different folks with the school. So I, it, it, this seems to be a what you see on the surface is actually what happened. Yeah, it is what it is. They learn from yeah. this. Yeah. I, and I mean, I'm it's, just, hoping... it's right there. Last point exactly. I want to make, and then I have one last question for you, Jason. I just find it very interesting, and it goes to the mindset of the people who ultimately carried out this decision and made this determination. They chose to disallow and cancel a commemoration of a 9-11 remembrance, right? a commemoration of one of the most horrific days in American history 20 years ago. This would have been you know, the, the day before this game was going to be played by in the process saying, no students, you cannot wear red, white, and blue as you would like to because it could be potentially unintentionally offensive to some sort of question mark who those some are or why. And I guess it didn't really cross their minds how incredibly and deeply offensive that decision would be to a hell of a lot more people, Jason. Real people, not hypothetical. Exactly. I think that sometimes when you live in a bubble, when you live in an echo chamber, and this is true of the right as well, you have a tendency to ignore what the other side thinks and you convince yourself that because it's a popular position in your bubble, that outside of the bubble, of course everyone's going to agree with us, because we are brilliant and we are right, and we would never take on positions that are wrong. But this is just another story that exemplifies why it's so important to get outside of that echo chamber, to actually talk to people who maybe disagree with you, because then you'll find out, perhaps, that there are way more people who disagree than agree on stories like this. And I am so proud of the students who are speaking up, who are stepping up and saying, yeah, this is absurd, and just the tips over the last few hours that I've received from students about what's been going on at the school from the, uh, the, the teachers pushing their politics on them is, is pretty eye-opening. So there'll be a part two to this. Yeah, the perils of groupthink on the adult side. Can you give us any quick, uh, for last question or last statement here, Jason, any quick insight into how the student body has reacted to this heavy-handed decision because it was their desire 
to go through with this tribute, and it was the powers yeah. in charge of them, the administration and the teachers, who told them they couldn't. A lot of the students reached out with one exception. Everyone was upset and said that this was the wrong move. We heard from one football player who's also the senior class president who said he was shocked and disappointed by this particular move. So it sounds like the students are doing what they should be doing, which is standing up for what's right. And that's what we want students to do. That's what they're doing here, it would appear, at least as of now. But obviously now that the uh, law enforcement side of things are involved because of some threats that were purportedly made via phone, you know, it's very easy, I think, for the school to turn this around and just say, see, we're the victims here. No, the, the, any death threat or any kind of violent threat that was, was given is obviously wrong, and the person who did it or people who did it should pay a legal price. However, they were still wrong. End of story. Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH out in Seattle, our Guy Benson Show affiliate out there. Jason, always appreciate your time. This one was a doozy. We had to have you on. I appreciate uh, you shining a spotlight on it. I, I feel like this may not be our last segment together on Woke Tales. So uh, let's just leave it there for now, and we will talk to you soon, friend. Thank you so much. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. That- From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we were talking about that really inexcusable, indefensible decision by that high school out in Seattle in the previous segment. If you missed that interview with Jason Rance, you have to go back and hear it on the podcast, guybensonshow.com. But I'm not even sure if that is the worst decision that I have seen from an American high school within the last week. A close runner-up, or perhaps in first place, is a high school in Colorado. The Regis Jesuit High School was featured in the Wall Street Journal. Here's the headline. China makes sure everyone writes Taiwan's name just so. Even a Colorado high school. And the story details how this high school out in Colorado applied for credentials for some of their students to attend the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, one of those meetings for the spring. And in the process of this application, there was, quote, a hiccup. The school's website used the incorrect terminology for Taiwan, according to the government of China. And the committee, the U.N. committee, suggested modifying this one reference on this random high school's website from Taiwan, which was sort of referred to as a country, which it is, to, quote, Taiwan province of China. The journal writes, Beijing has long used its rising clout to challenge governments and multinationals over its claim that Taiwan is part of China. It's also increasingly pushing around the runts of global diplomacy like this high school. In Colorado. So they interview one of the teachers involved and said, you know, this is an interesting situation. She said it was an article that was a year old from the school's website that just mentioned that a student had joined some advisory board alongside youths, quote, from countries including Taiwan. Somehow this caught the attention of the Chinese Communist Party, which then realized that they had a leverage point because the school needed access to some UN event on a field trip. And the CCP decided to try to strong arm this school in Colorado to censor something on their website, this totally 
obscure reference that was a year old. The teacher said no one was ever going to randomly stumble upon that webpage, but the CCP did, not randomly, and they decided to assert themselves. They said you need to change it. It's not a country. It's a province of our country. That is their official communist state line. The Wall Street Journal reports that the teacher found the request odd, but added, quote, province of China to the article as requested. And then the credentials were approved and endorsed by the U.N. committee. So this communist regime decided to target a high school in Colorado and said, jump. And the high school apparently said, how high? And this is the type of pressure campaign that China, through coercion, engages in in ways big and small all across the globe. I cannot imagine what went through the heads of the officials at a high school in America to decide that they were going to bend to the propaganda demands of a communist regime, but that is precisely what they did. But hey, at least the kids got a cool experience. At what cost? Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up, stay with us. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour on this Monday edition. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day should you miss any of the live broadcast, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. We are starting to get a little bit more autumnal, at least in some parts of the country, And thankfully, long drink is a year-round beverage, if you're 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. you got to try it. Find out where it's sold near you or order online, thelongdrink.com. As we begin our happy hour, our final hour, let's welcome back to the program Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, also host of the hit podcast Media Buzz meter. I follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's good to have you back here. And it's good to be back, Kai. You know, we're going to talk about this later on this hour, but at least in my experience, and I wonder if this is true for you as well, as someone who lived through 9 11 in the New York area, it was an incredibly difficult day, probably still the worst single day of my life personally. Sure. Every year, on the anniversary, I pause, I reflect, I think about what happened, and it's very somber. I have found that after the first few anniversaries, the visceral nature of my reaction just in my gut, in my heart, in my head, perhaps diminished a bit over time. That was not true this past weekend. For whatever reason, the 20th anniversary hit me pretty hard And I wonder if that's something you can relate to, Howie, and 
if you have any theories on why this one felt like it really stung more than perhaps the last few. And I don't want to project that onto you. That's just my experience. No, I mean, I've kind of been dreading the day, and it's true, you know, every year there's a certain ritual quality to it, and, you know, it's hard to sort of hold in your head and your heart just how awful and terrible and tragic that day was. But because it had this nice round number, the media coverage uh, was very extensive, and I think that brought back a lot of the feelings. I also think the passage of time reminded us not just about the uh, terrible nature of those hijacked airplanes hitting New York, Washington, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, but also the feeling of unity that followed, if there was any silver lining at all. And what I've been reflecting on is how much that has changed since the aftermath of 9-11-2001 and how uh, our media culture, our political culture, is so much more polarized uh, and that we sort of lost that moment of unity. And I want to come back to that exact point in a moment. Before we do, if you can just rewind 20 years and remind us at least from your perspective and within your analysis of the role of the media that day itself because there were so many horrific true reports but also horrific rumors that were flying around and it was like coming relentlessly wave after wave of horror and there were journalists especially on broadcast outlets TV and radio who had to try to synthesize and weed through stuff in real time, where even you know the powers that be, officialdom, didn't know the answer to whether something was real or not. Maybe just talk about the challenge of journalism on a major breaking news event, especially one that is so unspeakably terrible. Right. Well, you know, uh, at least on the East Coast, all the morning shows are suddenly interrupted. And I happened to be watching the Today Show that morning. Broadcast news was the go-to place for breaking news at that time in a way that it absolutely is not today. And, you know, it, it's a plane has hit one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And my first reaction was, this has got to be an accident. I couldn't immediately wrap my head around the fact that this would have been a planned attack until, of course, uh, the second tower hit. And you saw uh, people like uh, Brokaw and Jennings and Rather, who were the big three of the big three networks, the broadcast networks, um, trying to provide as much information. The pictures, the images, the video was horrible. It was hard to know what was going on. Communications were strained. There were no more airplanes in the air. I remember being a very weird thing uh, here in Washington. Uh, and sure, some incorrect facts got on the air. But at the same time, you know, there was an effort to tell the stories of heroism, of firefighters and other first responders who ran toward the burning towers. It was overwhelming. It was sort of what journalists are supposed to do when you have a real story. You don't have to hype or sensationalize. And there was a lot of processing that went on. And I think the journalists, many of whom told me they were deeply affected, obviously, by covering that day, uh, were doing it along with us because nobody saw this coming. Yeah, and I just remember how many people were glued to their television sets for days on end. And I might be imagining this or inventing this, Howie. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. You probably know. You might not. But I don't remember the ticker at the bottom of the screen being so ubiquitous before 9-11. I just, and maybe I'm just going back and making that up, but in my mind, no, at least the way, the way that no. I remember it, there was so much information happening all at once that the networks decided, let's start putting more information on words at the bottom of the screen just flowing constantly, and for some reason I associate that change with 9-11. 
Yeah, no, it absolutely. What, what, what the TV insiders call the crawl was absolutely born of 9-11, where there was so much information. Remember, this wasn't over in a day. I mean, you know, all of the weeks that followed and trying to and the hunt for who was responsible, and then, of course, the war in Afghanistan. Right. Over the years, I think people started to tune out the ticker, and also, you know, on slow news days, there'd be just a lot of sort of fluffy stuff on the ticker. And now it's not so much in vogue anymore, but it absolutely was one of the uh, legacies of uh, the 9-11 coverage. On your show yesterday, Media Buzz, Ari Fleischer said something that got some attention, and I know that there was a bit of a controversy about it. You went on Twitter to defend Ari. He doesn't need anyone defending him, obviously. He's mm-hmm. more than capable of that himself. But I think in the interest of fairness, you want to say, well, hang on. Some people might be taking what he said out of context. Of course, he was the press secretary at the White House on a day where questions were all over the place, but answers were often in short supply. Just explain what happened on your show and why some of the critics might be giving Ari a bit of a raw deal here. Yeah, it was the very first question. And by the way, I thought Ari Fleischer was very candid. And he uh, talked about uh, how, yes, uh, the, the media were, were supportive and unified for about three months, he said. And then they got tired of that story with Bush being at 90 percent. And so then they started to turn more negative. But the very first question was, I remember verbatim, it was, what was it like being in the White House on 9-11, and what was your biggest challenge with the press? And he said the biggest challenge for him, responding to my specific question, right, was that all reporters had all of these questions, perfectly good questions about what had happened, and they didn't really have answers. And he said it's hard thing to go out on the podium and not have the answers, but I threw in that, of course, is also you don't want to say something wrong in that Ford environment. Remember, we didn't know would there be more planes, would there be more attacks. It was extremely tense time. Yeah. Well, I go on social media, which, as we know, can be a, a toxic cesspool, and it's like, oh, Ari, the hardest thing for you is the, the answering questions. What about the people who jumping out of the buildings? Or what about this? And why did you lie about Iraq? Which, of course, came a year and a half later. And I just thought it was unfair because all Ari Fleischer did was answer my question. If you don't like him, if you don't like the way he did, he had dealt with his job, if you don't like George W. Bush, you don't like the Iraq invasion, fine. But I didn't think that could be hung on him in the context of what I asked and how he responded. Yeah, he answered a specific question that mm-hmm. you asked him, and I think some people snipped it and said, oh, well, he's putting himself above these other totally incomparable situations, and that's not what you asked. So I just want to put that out there because I think that's sure. a cheap shot that some people are taking. But another point, as you just alluded to, that Ari made, and he's not the only one. In fact, I had conversations over the weekend multiple times. People brought this up independently. It was a topic of conversation, and that has to do with unity. Unity back then, with Ari saying that sort of the, hey, you know, united we stand, that whole message Let's wave the flag together. You know, we're not Republicans, we're not Democrats, we're Americans, so on and so forth. That lasted for a period of time. That was never going to be indefinite, right? Of course, politics will always start to creep back into things. Whether you agree or disagree with his timeline, whether you agree or disagree that the press wanted to start attacking Bush again because they thought that he was too popular and they didn't like him for other reasons, I think that there's probably something to all of that. What I was talking about and what people posed separately, multiple people posed this question to me over the weekend. If the exact same thing, God forbid, were to happen now in today's mass media and social media environment, if a 9-11 level atrocity took place now, would the reaction of the American people look like it did 20 years ago? Or are we so far gone and splintered into our little silos, would it be a much more 
cynical and immediately divisive response. And honestly, Howie, part of me thinks that it, of course, would be the latter to some extent because there were always going to be people out there, and this is probably true on 9-11, who had all their crank ideas and who, if they had a platform like a Twitter feed or a Facebook page, there probably would have been a lot more of these horrible hot takes 20 years ago. There wasn't really that realm available to average people at the time, and therefore the, the culture was a little bit more homogenous a little bit back then. I still think that the American people broadly would rally heavily in the face of an event like that. But I don't know. It's a, it's a terrible thought experiment. But it also, in some ways, the fact that people are asking it, they're grappling with the media environment. And I wonder what you think of it. The media environment today is so corrosive, so polarized, both uh, I think the media fuel that polarization and also reflect it in society. Uh, There's such an attempt now by people on the right and people on the left, not just to disagree with each other. We should have healthy, fierce debate over these fundamental issues, including issues like anti-terror tactics, security, uh, civil liberties, and all of that. Uh, But it is so toxic today that I think that uh, there'd be an immediate blame game in a way that there wasn't. Uh, I don't think you'd see a rallying around President Biden. I don't think you would have seen a rallying around President Bush had it happened on his watch. And I think there are many reasons for that, but I tried to explore this on the show yesterday. I do think the media play a leading role because attacks and demonization and uh, whacking people get your clicks and ratings, and that's unfortunately where we are today. Last question, and it dovetails off of that observation you just made. President George W. Bush spoke in Pennsylvania. On Saturday and his speech in some ways was almost like this Rorschach test you had some people saying what a beautiful well-delivered compassionate thoughtful speech you had people on the left saying look at this lying warmonger trying to rewrite history and sort of soften the edges of what he's responsible for so sort of the the typical you know Bush lied children died attacks Mm -hmm. from the left but then you also had quite a few people on the right and particularly sort of in trump world who interpreted a few lines of what bush said as a pretty perhaps implicit but clear dig at president trump and some people said maybe he was kind of indirectly invoking january 6th as well other people were doing that explicitly which i think is is really unseemly and wrong bush did not do that explicitly but people were reading into what he said saying yeah this is this is what he's doing it's about trump and the former president donald trump put out a statement blasting president bush just a few hours ago what do you make of that because perhaps that's just another piece of evidence affirming the thesis that you just laid out in your last answer yeah yeah, and, and, and Bush said that politics, too much of politics has become raw anger and so forth. And look, there's very clearly no... <laughs> which, which, by the way, then immediately yeah. spawned an explosion of raw anger. Yes, exactly. And look, a lot of people in the country are still angry at George W. Bush for taking us to war in Iraq on the basis of what turned out to be non-existent weapons of mass destruction that Saddam supposedly had. It was a huge foreign policy blunder, whether you believe the invasion was correct or not. A lot of people supported at the beginning, came uh, to oppose it as the war dragged on. There is no love lost between Trump and Bush. Trump ran against Bush uh, and Middle East wars, even though Bush was not on the ballot and is done with politics. And I think there was certainly implicitly in the former president's 
speech in Pennsylvania uh, an allusion to we should be also worried about domestic extremism, those right. who would do things like January 6th, uh, and not just uh, those you know foreign terrorists who now may be emboldened in Afghanistan. Uh, so it was a Rorschach test, and I think that people who now see George W. Bush as a kind of a voice of civility and elder statesman like the spirit of what he said and the, and the uh, lament about the lost unity in this country, which is undeniable. And at the same time, Iraq remains a major defining moment for Bush that did have an impact on our country that we still feel 20 years later. Howie, I told you it was the last question, but... That what you just said sparked one last thought quickly. It's not about Iraq. It's about Afghanistan. Is the media because the media was pretty tough on President Biden, rightfully so on Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It seems like that storyline has largely disappeared, not completely. Of course, there's still an ongoing nightmare for the people, including Americans still stranded there. But it strikes me as if the media is kind of bored by that one and, and over it. Well, it was always inevitable that once U.S. troops came out, there would be less interest among the public and the media. But, I mean, I've talked about this one hour after President Biden gave the speech when the last U.S. plane left Kabul. Uh, MSNBC was like, war? What war? And started leading its hours, and, and, and this is, went on for days and days, with just attacks on Republicans and the usual Republicans are evil and so forth. And very little on the war. There have been a couple of exceptions, Andrea Mitchell and others, talking about the Americans and the Afghan allies left behind. But there has been, I think... Even among outlets that were tough on on Biden, excuse me, and rightfully so, for the complete botching of the evacuation and the end of that war, uh, that are all too happy to move on from a story that they believe has been damaging to a president they kind of like. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, Fox News Channel, every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. That podcast of his, again, is Media Buzz Meter. Howie, always appreciate it. Let's talk soon. Love coming on. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Happy to have you along. So this is heartening news after a year and a half in the dark because of the COVID pandemic, Broadway is finally coming back in New York City. Some of the biggest, most popular Broadway musicals are returning to the stage with live audiences tomorrow. The Great White Way coming back to life with shows like Hamilton and Wicked, The Lion King, Chicago. Curtains will come up and there will be audiences packing the house in each of those cases. Now, there'll be restrictions and requirements, vaccine requirements, vaccine proof, mask wearing, that sort of thing. But this is an industry that has just been frozen for month after month after month. It has been excruciating for the people who work in this element, this area of show business. I have a few friends who are on Broadway or are connected to various productions, and it's been an extremely hard time. For them, And I'm just very happy to see live theater returning to New York. And let's hope it never goes dark like this ever again. And while we're talking about that, just a quick plug. If you go to foxnewspodcast.com, there's a great podcast that they do on a regular basis called The Fox Top 5, where they have two Fox News personalities go through their top five 
fill in the blank. So, you know, your favorite pizza toppings, favorite holiday traditions. So they asked me to do my top five with Liz Clayman from Fox Business Network, top five Broadway shows. And so she and I went back and forth. I did not know that Liz is actually a voter for the Tony Awards, which is a pretty cool fact about her. She has seen hundreds of shows. I have not. But we had a great conversation listing and enumerating our top five Broadway shows as Broadway comes back tomorrow. Break a leg, guys. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We return next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the program. Happy Monday. Earlier today, Britt Hume, senior political analyst for Fox News Channel. He stopped by. We always enjoy our visits with Britt. Today, no exception. Here's part of that conversation. Let's make our way through some of these sound bites. I'd love to get your reaction to them, starting with Blinken in his opening remarks, among other things, saying this in Cut 36. There's no evidence that staying longer would have made the Afghan security forces or the Afghan government any more resilient or self-sustaining if 20 years and hundreds of billions of dollars in support, equipment, and training did not suffice. Why would another year, another five, another ten? So, Britt, a familiar refrain from this administration basically saying, well, you know, an open-ended commitment wouldn't have made the Afghan forces stand on their own two feet, so why wait any longer? Seems to at least be a somewhat compelling argument in favor of withdrawing. There are, of course, counterpoints. There's nothing to do with the way they withdrew. Well, that's true. It doesn't. And furthermore, it leaves open the question, or at least it, it fails to deal with the fact that leaving the way we did made the Afghan forces a hell of a lot less resilient. Right. Uh, than they had previously been. I mean, they'd held out for a long time. And, you know, Blinken came up with a parade of horribles that we've all heard from him and from others in the administration before about all the dire things that were going to happen militarily uh, if, uh, if, we had not, if we had stayed and had not kept our end of the deal, the very, very weak deal cut by the Trump administration uh, in which we agreed to get out, that, that, uh, that the Afghan forces were going to resume their attacks, they were going to start attacking Americans, we're going to attack the cities and, and, and so on. Well, perhaps so. But then there's this question that never seems to be asked, Guy, and it's this. If this outcome is what our pulling out got, and it was the inevitable outcome, of whether in the short term or the long term, are we satisfied with this? Or are we simply saying that it was never a good idea to go into Afghanistan to root out the to root out the Taliban and shut down the the bases uh, of Al Qaeda and other terrorist operations because that is that is where we seem to be now, and if that was where we're inevitably going to be, it does raise the question of whether getting out would simply be something for a period of time when we might have to go back. Well, on that point, and on Blinken had this to say: Cut thirty nine. Congressman, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, uh, the uh, al-Qaeda, the group that attacked us uh, on on 9-11 long ago, was vastly degraded to the point where it is currently not capable in the assessment of our intelligence agencies of conducting an externally uh, directed attack against us uh, or against others. So, Britt, I hope and pray that he is right. I think politically the administration better 
hope and pray even harder that he's right about that, that al-Qaeda is not capable of carrying out, you know, outward-facing attacks against the United States or others, he said. And, you know, I don't want to be too cynical, but some of the pronouncements made confidently by this exact man in the last few months have proven disastrously wrong already. And again, I really hope this is not another one that we might add to the list at some point. Well, we're also hearing from from uh, the secretary that the Taliban had become stronger than it had basically been at any time in recent years. That it was really it was on it was on the way back. There's no reason to believe that a Taliban that strong would not, and and there's no reason to believe, based on the evidence we've seen since we left, that the Taliban has changed in any way. Uh, in any meaningful way that would make it less likely to harbor the kind of terrorist undertakings that led to 9-11. So, you know, I don't think that their argument, they're trying to kind of have it both ways. They're trying to say, well, they're, you know, the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies are degraded to the point where they can't hit us anymore. Um, but on the other hand, they're militarily stronger than, than the Taliban's mil- militarily stronger than they've ever been. It doesn't really add up very well. Well, they also have tens of billions of dollars of American equipment and weapons now. Uh, So that is also part of this equation. My full interview with Brett Hume and the entirety of today's show available online, free of charge, on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. A very moving moment on Fox News over the weekend on the anniversary of 9-11, plus a a pretty incredible teaching moment for producer Christine with her daughter about 9-11. An emotional, poignant home stretch coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show, and the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was over the weekend. And as I mentioned to Howie Kurtz earlier in the hour, For me, and I think I'm not alone, the marking of 20 years' time hit me harder than a 9-11 anniversary has in years. I thought about it all day. It was heavily emotional. One clip that really moved me, because I remembered this from 20 years ago, but I'd forgotten it. The morning after 9-11, over in London... There is a tradition at Buckingham Palace called the Changing of the Guard. It's very famous tourists flock to watch. And there's a band and they play music and there's this royal tradition that has stretched hundreds of years. And some of the soldiers playing the instruments are in those very uh, traditional bright red uniforms with those big tall hats. You know what I'm talking about. Lindsay Fifield from the Heritage Foundation tweeted out a video of what happened on 9-12-2001. The Queen broke a 600-year tradition and requested during that ceremony the performance of the Star-Spangled Banner. And I remember as a kid, a teenager at the time, seeing that clip and being overwhelmed by the moment with gratitude for our great allies, just the the symbolism, the solidarity that that represented, that act. And 20 years later, it still gets me kind of choked up and gives me goosebumps 
Here's how it sounded. Cut 35. just throngs who were gathered there bursting into cheers. And if you watch the full video, you can hear a lot of people singing. And the cameras panned, and there were people weeping at the gates of Buckingham Palace, holding little American flags. And over the weekend, the same military band, different people, but a changing of the guard ceremony over in the UK repeated that performance on the 20-year anniversary. And just sort of bookends. And a very beautiful sight, in my view. The visuals are striking, but the context of that sound that you just heard, those notes of our anthem, and that roar from the crowd, brings you back. Christine, did you have a similar sense to what I described of 20 years packing sort of a disproportionate punch? Because every year it's sad. Every year we pay tribute. But, you know, the 16th anniversary, for instance, of 9-11, it didn't quite do this to me for whatever reason compared to what I experienced over this past weekend. I actually... I really agree with you on this one. Um, even leading up to Saturday, it just seemed to hit me harder. Usually, I, I'll watch you know programming about it on the day, and then yeah, the next day we go on and you know we say we never forget, and we really don't. But there's something about the days leading up, and even yesterday and Saturday was really really tough. Uh, so much so that I really wanted to do more than just watch something on TV or, you know, listen to something on the radio. So my husband and I made the decision to drive to Jersey City where you can actually see the beam of lights that come up in place of where the two towers stood. And we took our eight-year-old daughter, Megan, to go see it and to really kind of explain to her because we never really talked about 9-11. She had heard about it. She knew about it, but she didn't really know what happened. And, you know, you want to, she's innocent and you, you don't want to scare her and you don't, but she needs to know. And so we, we tried to sit her down and, you know, talk to her and explain exactly what happened and why we must remember and why those lights mean so much. And it was sad. She, we sat down and her and I were talking and she looked at me and she said, mommy, that had to be an accident. Nobody would ever do something like that on purpose. Are you sure that wasn't just an accident? And there were people, it was very crowded uh, Saturday night. It was a beautiful night. And there was a lady sitting next to me on a rock, and she said, I think I'm going to cry. She said, because that just, it makes sense. Like, nobody would do that to us, but they did. And that's why we do have to remember. And there was a lady giving out candles 
And uh, my daughter ran up and said, oh, can I have one? Can I have one? And I said, Megan, I don't know if they're selling them. I don't have cash on me. And the lady looked at me and she goes, I'm not selling these. She goes, my brother died in the towers. She's like, I come here every September 11th and I give out candles so everybody could remember him. And we exchanged pleasantries. And my daughter went and lit a candle and she said a prayer. And it really hit home. It always has been on the forefront. I mean, it changed my whole trajectory of my career and my life, but something really hit hard this year. And I know that, um, I know our show, especially when we interviewed Lisa Friedman on Friday, that got oh me. Oh my gosh. That oh, really, yeah. really got me. I could barely keep it together. I know, I know. And I will say, I tweeted a photo that you took from Jersey City looking across to Lower Manhattan. It is a gorgeous, striking photograph. I tweeted it on Saturday night, because you sent it to our group text, and I want to give you on the air some photo creds for it, because it, it really looks like a professional photo, and uh, it's it's a beautiful and haunting image. And, you know, Christine, I have never gone to that 9-11 memorial in Lower Manhattan. I haven't just really been able to bring myself to do it. Even when I was at the George W. Bush Presidential Library a few years ago in Dallas, there's a whole section of it, as you might imagine, about 9-11. And I didn't skip it, but I kind of quickly went through it because I still, like, I lived through it. I remember personally how horrible it was for you know, friends of ours, for my community and our town. And I still feel like it's in some ways like too soon for me to immerse myself in a lot of this stuff again. But... I think that might have been why I was so impacted. I realized, is it really too soon? It's been 20 years, 20 years. And so I guess I forced myself a little bit more this weekend to watch more of the videos and, and read some more of the accounts and just that conversation that we had on Friday's show. If you missed that conversation with Lisa Friedman and her son, and she's a 9-11 widow, and that conversation that she had with her husband, Trapped in the Towers, I mean, it was spellbinding and heartbreaking. But it's the type of thing that I think we need to hear as a country if we mean it when we say never forget. And I think it's a really great thing that you did as a parent. I know it's got to be tough to figure out, you know, what's the right age to really explain something to a child who's so innocent, who didn't live through it. And I know Megan's eight and just what a... What a sad thing that she said. Why would anyone ever do something like that? That's, that sort of puts a lump in your throat. And something else that I thought was very moving from over the weekend was an announcement that was made, a surprise announcement on Fox News. On Saturday evening, there was a special 9-11 commemoration edition of The Five. And there was a gentleman on set who runs a great organization for first responders, and he did not know sitting there what was about to happen. Jesse Waters made that announcement. Here's what it sounded like. Cut 15. We have a very special announcement. Fox Corporation is <laughs> donating $1 million to the Tunnel Woo! Tower. Here, here, here. We have Fox Corporation Executive Chairman and Chief Executive Officer oh, Lachlan Murdoch. God. This donation honors your brother, Stephen Siller, and the Tunnel oh, the Towers oh, Foundation. Isn't that great? Which is committed to ensuring that we never forget 9-11 and the sacrifices made by our first responders in the line of duty. So 
you could hear the reaction. It's really quite visual, too. This guy is shocked and obviously moved. It is the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Frank Siller was the guest. Christine, briefly explain his story. So Frank is the brother of Stephen Siller. And Stephen Siller was a firefighter. And he had just gotten off his night shift. And he was about to meet his brother, Frank, and a couple other brothers to go golfing. And he was driving. And he heard about the first plane hitting um, the North Tower. So he drove back and he was trying to get through the battery tunnel and it was closed and he couldn't get out, couldn't get into the city. So he decided to pack on 60 pounds of, you know, all of his equipment and he walked through the tunnel directly to the towers. And unfortunately, he lost his life that day. But that's why they named it Tunnel to Towers and, you know, Frank has done such an amazing job trying to pay off mortgages for first responders that uh, might have lost their life or Gold Star families that need help, you know, paying right. off things. And they're doing a great job. And Frank had said once they donated, once Lachlan had donated the, the million dollars, he said, you just paid off at least four to five mortgages and families that no longer have to worry about this when they've dealt with so much already. Yeah, it was a very, very cool thing, and it made me very proud to work at this company, and hats off to everyone involved, Lachlan Murdoch, of course, and everyone who made that happen, and it's, it's a wonderful, worthy cause, and there was an insane percentage, I mean, hundreds of the people who died on 9-11 in New York City were firefighters. Right, People were desperate to get out of the towers before they collapsed. And you had people like Frank Siller's brother who did exactly the opposite. They ran into danger to try to save as many innocent lives as they could. And many of them died in that process, in that endeavor. True bravery. Right, They call NYPD New York's finest. NYFD New York's bravest. For good reason. So usually we do a relatively light home stretch. We talk about silly nonsense and it's fun. And you might say, well, Guy, you kind of did the 9-11 show on Friday. Well, for reasons that we've already touched on here, this year it just hit a little different. And I wanted to revisit it. I think it was really worthwhile. Never forget Indeed, 20 years later. Back here tomorrow for the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. I hope you'll join us. Until then, have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.